All right, there we go, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Isaiah have uh, a little bit of continuity to them, which is a good thing. Even though in the Hebrew canon, they're organized a little bit differently than what they are in our English Bibles. Uh, there's, there's actually a little bit of continuity that, that's kind of good for us, for our understanding. I think it's a little bit helpful for us. So first thing I want to do is look at a couple of big picture items so that we can get a feel for what's going on. So the time period and the timeline of Jeroboam. So we're going to deal with several different kings. Okay, That will come up multiple times. We'll look at chapter 1, the first couple of verses. I've got it in different slides here. But Jehoiakim will become king of Judah in 609. Uh, Jeremiah will deliver his temple sermon, and that's in uh, chapter 7. In 605, Jehoiakim will become a vassal of Babylon. In other words, Babylon has conquered, and he's just a puppet king. Uh, Jehoiakim rebels in 601. Zedekiah will become king because Babylon's not going to put up with rebellious kings, right? Jeremiah will urge Zedekiah to submit to Babylon. Jerusalem will fall, and exiles are taken in 586. And Jeremiah is taken to Egypt uh, the next year in 585, okay? So we are tracking with the 600s and the 500s. So if you're in my first class, um, you got to struggle with the same thing i got to struggle with when I'm teaching it. Um, we, we just jumped like 500 years, all right? Now, thankfully, the, the geography stays the same. Uh, the main players stay the same. And... We're still dealing with Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, and we still got Palestine right in the middle. Canaan, they haven't moved, all right? Now, <clears throat> we looked at Isaiah last uh, class period. And so we saw that Isaiah was a little bit earlier, okay? Uh, Jeremiah is going to be after the reign of Manasseh, okay, who was the son of Hezekiah. And so... For Isaiah's ministry, who remembers what was the major world power that was at play? Babylon. Uh, no, actually. Over Isaiah's ministry? Yes. Yeah, it's all good. Who was it for Isaiah's ministry? Remember the world power? That one was Assyria. Assyria is the answer. Yes. Okay, so Assyria, okay was the world power then, controlling all this area, coming coming down to on top, going down through the from the north first, heading to the south, and the concern is what's going to happen to us. Remember in Hezekiah, he actually trusts God, and then God kills the 185,000 Assyrians for him, right? So that's Assyria. So now we're moving forward, okay? Babylon at one point had created um, an alliance with them, with Assyria, uh, but as the Assyrian uh, kings weakened and as uh, one of them died, Babylon decides they want to be in charge. And so for Isaiah, it was Assyria. For Jeremiah, it's going to be Babylon. All right? As we look at the life of Jeremiah, and we talk about some of the different aspects that are on the screen, this chart kind of puts them together for us. Okay? So we're dealing again about 630 to, to 580, give or take. The different kings of Judah. Now, there's actually five, all right? There's three main ones, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, all right? The small prize, all right, they only reigned for three months. That's it. Je Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, okay? So don't confuse Kim and 
kin or chin if you want, okay? Um, so that's in Judah. Meanwhile, in Egypt, okay, Nico is going to become a big player for us, okay? Pharaoh Nico. In Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, um, Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be our big bad boy. It's going to come in. <coughs> Jeremiah ministers in this gray bar right here. So you can see that he's overlapping with all five of the kings there from Judah, these kings in Egypt, and these kings in Babylon. Um, they find the law book in 621. Okay, The fact that it was uh, missing is a little bit problematic, right? Obviously, it's kind of like uh, you know, you can't find that that Bible that you really love. Well, maybe it's because you know it got lost or you didn't use it in forever, right? So we can't remember where it's at. That's uh, kind of what's going on here. Um, Battle of Carchemish is going to be important in 605. Jerusalem captured 597 and then destroyed in 586. Okay, so that's kind of big picture view of some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Just as a quick refresher for where some of these places are for you. Judah is in the south. you got Ammon, Moab, and Edom over here. Jerusalem is right about here. And Samaria was in the northern kingdom. They're already fallen, right? Okay. Um, John Stevenson has done a little bit of a comparison between Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so that's where this comes from. But Isaiah... He sees the northern kingdom of Israel taken into captivity at the hands of Assyria, whereas Jeremiah sees the southern kingdom of Judah taken into captivity at the hands of Babylon. So there it is again, Assyria, Babylon, right? A before B, right? Um, Isaiah foretold the judgments that would come in the future. Jeremiah explained the reasons for the judgments that Judah was experiencing. Um, now, in the beginning of Jeremiah, those judgments are not being experienced per se. Babylon is, is still coming in the very beginning. But um, Isaiah looks primarily to the future, Jeremiah to the present, although both of them have aspects um, of both. Isaiah is bold and fearless. Jeremiah seems to be gentle and compassionate. Isaiah was married to a prophetess and had children with prophetic names. Jeremiah was commanded not to take a wife or have any children. Um, that's my so let's look at the title and the intro of the book. Um, the book is named after the prophet Jeremiah. The, the name means either Yahweh establishes or appoints, those are the same basically, or Yahweh hurls. Now those aren't exactly the same, but either appoints and establishes or hurls. By word count, it's the largest of the prophetic books, and it's the last of the pre-exilic prophets. Okay, So what do I mean by the pre-exilic prophets? I mean the, the prophets before they get taken away into exile. Exile is what happens in 586 B.C. when Babylon captures them, and they are taken to Babylon and other places. Okay? Um, Lamentations 30, verse 15 says, Why do you cry out about your injury? Your pain has no cure. 
I have done these things to you because of your enormous guilt and your innumerable sins. Okay? We'll talk about Lamentations in the second part of our class together. But Jeremiah is telling the people, this is happening because of your sins. This is a judgment because of your sins. He says, look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay? That says Lamentations there, um, but I think that's supposed to actually say Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah 31, 31 is a new covenant. So, What do we expect in the book of Jeremiah as far as the, the genres go? There's classical Hebrew poetry, okay, a lot of the oracles. There's Hebrew prose, okay, written by Baruch in the third person. There's summaries of Jeremiah's sermons, often in prose, also from Baruch. And there's autobiographical complaints to God in poetic form. So there's a variety of forms. All right? Jeremiah is actually very difficult for a lot of people. Um, and as we'll see when we look at the structure, uh, people are pretty baffled by it as far as how it's organized. The author... Um, most would argue that it's obvious that Jeremiah didn't write chapters 52, 31, and 34 because it records events which occurred in Babylon, and Jeremiah was in Egypt at that point in time. Okay, So that's one thing to consider. Additionally, from looking at the, the scriptures, it looks like uh, Jeremiah did write some of it. It also looks like he dictated or had his scribe write some. And then some would argue that there's a later editor, after the fact, that compiled it and put it together in the portion that we have it. We do know from the book that it, it was, uh, at least part of it, was written twice because the king burned up part of it. The composition of the book. Jeremiah had been preaching for about 23 years before he was instructed to record his sermons on a scroll. He dictated his messages to the scribe Baruch. And this first edition of the book of Jeremiah was destroyed in 604, like I was just referring to, by Jehoiakim. But God had Jeremiah make another one. Kind of like the second commandment set, right? The second edition contained all the words of the first and many similar words, according to chapter 36, verse 32. So the second one was longer. A third edition may have been produced by Baruch in Egypt after the death of, Je of Jeremiah. Um, you can you can e erase must and put may. Okay, so that is one of the uh, ideas related to it as far as its composition goes. All right. <coughs> the book has some some textual issues. So you all remember what the Septuagint is? What's the Septuagint? Well, the Greek translation. Right, it's the Greek translation. So when you do Old Testament studies, okay, oftentimes what people will do is you'll compare the Septuagint and the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text is the MT or the Masoretic text, okay, because the Masoretics were those scribes that were responsible for um, doing the text and and for um, they're the ones I think that put the vowels in eventually. All right. So when I was in seminary, I I took a um, a class. It was a Malachi, and what we looked at was uh, comparing the Hebrew text and the Septuagint text of Malachi.
Malachi. So in the book of Jeremiah, there are some, some pretty big differences. So there's good evidence to believe that even apart from the original edition of Jeremiah's prophecy, which was destroyed by Jehoiakim, there was a later edition which preceded the final form of the text that we have now in the Masoretic. At least this is a reasonable deduction to draw from the Greek Septuagint, since it appears to be about one-eighth shorter than the Hebrew text. So the Septuagint is an eighth shorter than the Hebrew. It differs also in the arrangement of the chapters. Chapters 46 to 51 of the Hebrew, the MC, are placed after 25 in the Septuagint, so they're arranged in a different order. Not identical content, one shorter. Also, different ordering. Um, Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 26 of the MT is completely missing in the Septuagint. It's not there. Okay, so maybe the earlier edition was published in the prophet's lifetime and disseminated in Egypt, and later, after his death, and it, it appears maybe his secretary, Baruch, made a more comprehensive collection of all of his sermons. Anyway, this is just deductions and, and some guesswork. The MT preserved... Uh, the addition of, of Baruch. So in this connection, note that 36.32 indicates that a second preliminary edition was published in the reign of Jehoiakim, and it is therefore reasonable to assume that Jeremiah kept adding to these earlier sermons the messages that God gave him during the reign of Zedekiah and in the period subsequent to the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, um, Those are comments mostly from Gleason Archer. So the main point that you need to understand is that the Septuagint and the Hebrew text have some significant differences in the book of Jeremiah. And they're, uh, they're not even arranged in the same order in certain portions of it. So, almost 3,000 words of the Hebrew text are not in the Greek text. And I've already mentioned about the, the, the chapter swap. Both traditions are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's a little bit interesting also. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the caves at Qumran, near the Dead Sea, and they, when the, when the scrolls were found there, they validated the fact that the Hebrew text had not been corrupted because they showed that the continuous transmission preserved God's text. Okay, well, in this case, they show that both streams of text have evidence in the Qumran cave. So, there's a couple different editions, it looks like, of the Jeremiah text. Alright? That, that might be confusing, but the, the main thing you want to realize is that things aren't as simple as they sometimes appear. We just pick up our English Bibles and we just, oh, this is the text. Well, maybe, kind of. You know, I'm not trying to put any doubt into God's Word. I believe it is God's Word. Um, but I'm saying that you already know this, I think, but there's there's no like Hebrew manuscript that you can go pick up and it has everything from Genesis to Malachi in it. Like that's not how it is. So there are these different scrolls, and when they translate our Bibles into English, they're looking at what they have available and they're comparing it with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're comparing it with the Septuagint, and then they're making a educated, hopefully spirit-led decision about what you end up with in your Bible. So there's an awful lot of work that people don't realize that goes into you know, this whole process and that we really have a high reliance upon the work that these people do. So 
If anybody ever says you don't need a scholar to do anything, well, you don't even have a Bible without a scholar. So, <laughs> um, anyway, thankfully, nothing that I said and nothing related to Jeremiah or any other book of the Bible um, cast any shadow of doubt or changes any, any you know, doctrines of salvation or, or anything like that. Like, the doctrine of salvation is by grace through faith, and it's, like, in every book of the Bible. So, we're, we're still all good. Um, any, any comments, thoughts, questions on, on that? Does it bother you, confuse you? We all good with it? It would have bothered me when I was younger. Um, so, the date of the book. Well, Jeremiah was born in Anathoth, about 640 B.C., so the book of Jeremiah is dated in 1-2 and covers the time from the 13th reign of Josiah to the time of Gedaliah. So about 627 to 582 um, B.C. or so. House, in, in his book, I don't quite remember, he might say 627 to 587, give or take. But I think he also says um, 587 and beyond. So how long Jeremiah lived in Egypt with the refugees is uncertain. Um, the Ostraca, this is archaeological finds. Uh, Lachish de describes its siege in 587 in the form of the Hebrew text is comparable with Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah's message focuses on the events from the fall of Samaria to the fall of uh, Jerusalem. So again, we connect back with um, Isaiah. Isaiah was continuously warning them about the coming destruction of the northern kingdom, okay, by the Assyrians in 722. Okay? And then Jeremiah is going to continue to warn them about the coming destruction by the Babylonians in 586. So those two prophets, the, the two major prophets, they're two of the largest books. That's why they're in the beginning of the major prophet section in our English Bibles. And they really kind of set the stage and the tone and give you a big picture worldview idea of what's going on with uh, these two parts of, of God's people, the north and the south. Okay, now, there's nothing on this screen that you need to have in memory, okay? Um, but this here demonstrates the, the dating issues, okay, of Jeremiah's prophecies. Okay, so on the axis here on the left, okay, you have the date, and you've got who the kings were. And then scattered throughout here, you have the chapters. Right? And then on the far right, you have some events going on, like Josiah's reforms up there. So if you look at this, you'll see a zigzag pattern uh, to some degree of when these were thought to be historically written. Okay? So, if you were to pick some out, for instance, you would see that chapters 23 and 4, okay, are earlier than 21 on this, for instance. Or even 29 to 31 are before this. Or 49 is before this. Alright, is that making sense? Now, this is one of the things that, that makes Jeremiah very difficult to figure out the structure and the theme and, and what he's trying to do. Remember my SPSU thing? I'm very big on SPSU. Like, I, I don't think what's in the book is accidental. I don't think the way that it's in there is accidental either. Um, Jeremiah 
uh, makes uh, that a little bit of a challenge to try to figure that out. And so that's why the structural um, suggestions are, are kind of very all over the board. So you all understand? Make sense? The theme of the book. So the theme of this prophet consists largely in a stern warning to Judah to turn from idolatry and sin and to avoid the cat, uh, catastrophe of exile. Every class of Hebrew society was condemned as inexcusably guilty. If they don't repent, where are they going? They're going to Babylon. They're going to exile. If they submit to the exile, then there's future hope. So one of the things is that even as God judges them, okay, this is where uh, he offers repentance, but then you have the woes. Remember, by the time you get in the woes, like it's too late. You know, it's, hey, duck, I'm sorry, you're too slow. So when the woes are coming, all right, now you're going to be carried away into exile. Okay, well, what do we do now? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's fight now. No, this is my divinely orchestrated judgment on you. This is your testing in the wilderness. This is your judgment. You need to submit and endure it. If you do that, then there's a future hope, and you can come out on the other side. If you fight this, you get more, right? It's like with a, a strong-willed kid, right? You, so you're trying to discipline them or teach them something, and they continue to fight or push back on you. Well, that's what Israel is, right? Stubborn. <coughs> Jeremiah the man. All right? His name... Either Yahweh establishes a point or, as I mentioned earlier, hurls. The, the book and the name are, are the same. The book gets its name from the man. So they're, they're all wrapped up in the same. Uh, we actually know more about Jeremiah than any other prophet. We're given quite a bit of information in the first couple of verses of the text. Jeremiah 1.1 says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests living in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. So verse 1 tells us a decent amount of information. His family, he's the son of Hilkiah, a priest. He um, is thought to be, this, this is probably the banished priestly line of Abiathar from Anathoth. They were um, banished after the incidents um, in 1 Kings. And so no longer were, were they priests. Now, sometimes it's kind of hard to verify that this one is the same as this one. but um, And he is he's born and growing up during Manasseh's reign. If you ever want a good series of books, I think I've mentioned these before, but it's called The Chronicles of the Kings. It covers Hezekiah's reign and Manasseh's reign. And it's five volumes, so... Um, I have read some fiction um, to answer your question from earlier, Ethan, um, but it's historical fiction. This is a five-volume set, and uh, they were really, really good. I read all five volumes, and it really helps to give an um, understanding and make come to life what's taking place during the time of the kings. So, anyways, Manasseh was like the most evil king, and so Jeremiah is coming to, to light in the time period of the most evil king. The tribe of Benjamin. So for those of you in my, my first class, um, it's kind of interesting how much Benjamin keeps coming up. 
The village of Anathoth is about three miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, so he is pretty close to the city of Jerusalem. He's called the weeping prophet, the martyr prophet, and God's iron pillar. Lamentations, we'll get to that later this afternoon, is written by him, hence the, the weeping prophet and his complaining and crying out to God. The martyr prophet, um, the persecution he endures, and eventually death, and God's iron pillar, he refuses to give in, he has resilience. I have it on another slide, but he is contemporary with Daniel and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and, and Nahum. Um, there's many chapters in, in the book that deal with his confessions and, and complaints. Chapter 11 and 15, uh, 17, 18, and 20 all have various uh, aspects of those listed out. He began his ministry, um, as we mentioned, about 20 years of age in the 13th year of Josiah. Now, priests don't start their service until they're 30 years old. Okay, So even if he was going to be part of, of the priesthood, he would not begin that until he was 30. In contrast, 20 was the age at which you could be military active, which is why when the spies refused to take the land, um, everyone 20 and up was killed. 20 was the age of... 30 was the year of priest. But the greater part of his life, he lived in his hometown of Anathoth. So he would have showed up at Jerusalem, just three miles away, at those annual feasts. He seems to have been well off financially, since he's able to purchase the forfeited estate of a bankrupt kinsman without apparent difficulty later on in the book. Alright. His ministry... In 110, there's six words used to describe Jeremiah's ministry. If you look at that, it says, See today I have set you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. These three aspects listed in, in verse 10 of, of chapter 1 are referred to by Paul Howells in your textbook. I think on page 197, let me see if it's there. Somewhere. He bases his outline, which we'll talk about in a, a few minutes, off from that verse, or related to that verse, about what God is going to do. So these ideas that God is going to uproot and tear down, judgment, destroy and demolish, build and plant. So the last one, the building and planting, is the encouraging and the restoring and, and the blessing aspect. And so... Throughout the book of Jeremiah, these are the things that Jeremiah is going to be uh, called to do. The first two, 
pluck up and break down, cover chapters 2 to 29. I'm pretty sure this is from House. The last two, building and planting, covers 30 to 33. If you remember chapter 31, the New Covenant, that's right in the middle of that, right? And the middle two, destroying and overthrow, covers 34 to 51. Okay? So that is a, a simplified manner, right, of looking at this. So 110, and it's 2 to 29 for the first two. 30 to 33, so you got to skip the middle one, right? And then 34 to 51. Well, 1 is an intro then, and 52 is the conclusion, epilogue, etc. Right? We'll come back to that in a little bit. A major part of his ministry was judgment. But the last two words are about hope. There will be hope after the judgment, which is how God works. I think we mentioned this when I talked to you about the oracles of salvation and judgment. That once the woe hits, well, it's too late, you're getting the judgment. But after the judgment, God holds out that hope. Okay? He's not done. All right? Even when he, he chops down the tree, what's he leave? He leaves a stump. So out of the stump, a shoot can come, right? Which is Jesse, through which Jesus eventually comes. All right. Continuing on. So the ministry of Jeremiah. Now, you'll have to, uh, I guess, forgive me for, for one thing today, and that's going to be different slides may have some different structural aspects to it, and that's because of the, the lack of agreement about the structure. So, in this particular one, for instance, they have 1 to 39 and 40 to 52, and they have the dividing line being 586, and the Book of Lamentations being written in there as the fall of Jerusalem takes place and they go into exile, all right? So, and here what you have during his ministry is his prophecies during Josiah's reign. Then during Jehoiakim's reign, then Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, and then Zedekiah's reign. Then over here is to the remnant in Judah and to the remnant in Egypt, okay? Now that's also a pretty simplified structure of, of the book. I probably actually should move that down. It probably should have been not under ministry, but should be under one of the structures sections. His life. Under God-fearing Josiah, he remained unmolested by the government and enjoyed such cordial relations with that king that he composed an eloquent lamentation at the time of the king's death at the Battle of Megiddo. Among his fellow priests and relatives, Jeremiah had built up considerable ill will because of his forthright rebuke of their infidelity to the covenant and his condemnation of their worldly practices. Think about it. So he's raised in a priestly family, right? So the priests are responsible for carrying out uh, the special uh, actions that God requires um, related to the temple and worship and training the people how to worship God. And here is one of their own who is rebuking, he's not just rebuking kings or people, he's rebuking the priesthood. And so all, all of the priesthood, which is family in this case, right, is, is being rebuked. After Josiah's death, Jeremiah was protected to some degree by God-fearing elders and princes as leadership became pro-Egypt. 
The temple sermon in chapter 7 to 10 seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back. From here forward, Jeremiah seems to be forbidden from entering the temple, and he uses Baruch as his mouthpiece. Okay? Opposition includes beatings, public humiliation, false prophets, scorn, attempts to kill him, etc. One of the things that uh, I've, I've been thinking about a little bit recently is, is these guys in the Bible. It's easy for us to, to read their stories or, for instance, like Samson, we look at that and we think, you know, what a, what a jerk, like, what, what's his deal, what's his problem? Um, or we read the stories about David, but can you imagine, um, I mean, their, their life is so different from, especially if you were born and raised in America, from what we go through and what our idea of life and our religious experience is. So, not only, obviously, do we have no animals that we're slaughtering, okay, so we never get our hands bloody, which they did on a regular basis, but on top of that, how they lived and, and what they went through. So, Jeremiah preaches for 40, 40 plus years, right, and has next to no converts, right? What do, you, what do you do with that? I mean, do you just fold up shop? Do you, do you keep doing it? I mean, obviously he kept doing it, but I'm saying, what do we do? Okay, what, what, what does someone say if, you, if you're part of a ministry and nobody's being saved? I mean, what's the response in America? Well, give it up. Go get a different job. Let someone, let someone else do it that can get results, right? Isn't that our response? And yet God, God tells him to go. Um, Isaiah didn't have much different of a response either, right? They didn't listen to Isaiah either. Uh, the, the tenor of scripture is that they don't listen to the prophets. Or when you think about people like uh, David or people in his, his time period, even Saul, etc., um, living in tents, running around in the wilderness, uh, fighting battles on a regular basis. Like, this isn't how people, they're not getting up in the morning getting their iPad or coffee or Bible out and having their quiet time at the kitchen table. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is not part of their life. And so, um, I guess what I'm saying with all that is that I think we sanitize things. Like, it's all sanitized to us. And, and we, we don't wrestle with what that would really be like. And the mundane, to some extent, and then, like, the nitty-gritty that goes on in all of their lives. Um, last night, I was coming home from our, our ministry at the apartments that we do. And they're talking about this giraffe that's about to give birth. Anybody hear this? You've heard it. Anybody else? Yes? Yes? All right. So, um, did they give birth yet? No? No? Okay. So, yeah. So, they have hundreds of thousands of people watching this live cam about this giraffe. They want to see the giraffe drop the baby, you know? Um, and so that's going on in one place. And then in Sudan, they're about ready to have another genocide. And so hundreds of thousands are watching a giraffe that's going to give birth, which is, you know, that'd be pretty cool, right? I mean, I've never seen a giraffe give birth, so it's probably pretty cool. God created giraffes, right? Um, so in another place in Sudan, you have a genocide about to happen because of ethnic and racial wars. Um, and then if you want to talk animals again, elsewhere you have like the last white rhinos are like about to be extinct. So I'm not on the animal kick. I'm actually 
more concerned about the fact that most people don't know what's going on in Sudan. Um, it's just so easy for us, I think, to uh, not really grasp what it was like for them in the Bible or for people in another world that have to actually uh, struggle on a daily basis just to live. You know, like, what is Facebook like when you have to fight to survive? Because I don't fight to survive. I just wake up and I never worry really about surviving. So, I don't know. I, I think that that's something that we got we got to wrestle with. About 60 years after Isaiah's death, God called Jeremiah, okay, about 21 years old, to the difficult but urgent task of proclaiming his word to Judah on the eve of national disaster, all right? The clock's ticking. Babylon's coming. Okay, I'm sending my prophet. I'm going to send another messenger and tell him. Jeremiah immediately embarked on his new course and for about 50 years stood as the representative and spokesman for God. Kings, rulers, priests, and politicians, as well as the false prophets, vehemently opposed the policy which he recommended for the nation. That talks a lot about policy and politics. Okay, he was a prophet. He was speaking for God, okay? But he was giving policy directives. Don't align yourself with them. Trust God. Isaiah was doing the same thing. Don't make treaties with them. Trust God. It's all about who, who you trust. All right? You trust in chariots or you trust in the creator? A 40-year-plus ministry, okay? His call to the fall. All right, that's how you can remember it. 627 to 586 or 7 or 582. Again, the divergence of dates that you see with Old Testament stuff, you can't let it worry you. Um, they're not pinpointed. He was a preacher. He used drama. He used writing, prayer, statesmanship, and politics, and counseling. He did all of these things in his 40, 50 years of ministry. Who are the contemporary kings? We've already mentioned who they are. Here's their dates. There's only one that's good. Okay? There's only one king. Um, we won't cover it in this course because it's in OT1. But when the kingdom divides, all right, after King Solomon, it splits into north and south. There's 20 kings for each. You can make it easy. Okay? Sometimes... Um, Textbooks will talk about 19 and 20, and I've taught it both ways, but um, I'm now convinced there's enough there's enough uh, scholars that go to, with the 20 number, and it's just easier. So, um, 20 kings and 20 kings. That gives you a total of 40 kings, right? So once it splits, so here you go, split it, right? X marks the spot, X is Jerusalem. How many good kings did the north have? looking at the last the last of the eight good ones not only that the northern kingdom during their time period was uh, a bit more chaotic and changed dynasties so in the south you have one dynasty 
Okay? They're all from the line of Judah, okay? Following after David. In the north, if I'm not mistaken, there's ten. Ten different dynasties. This is what has preceded. Okay? So one dynasty. This is the precursor to Jeremiah coming on the scene. How are these kings uh, related? So Josiah, the good king, okay? His sons, Jehoahaz, Eliakim, Madaniah, which gets his name changed to Zedekiah, and Eliakim is changed to Jehoiakim. And Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. You see it both ways. Why are their names changed? Well, the Babylonians changed their names when they took over. The prophets, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, were some of the contemporaries. I need to make a note to you about this chart. Um, remember when I, I showed you this a while back when we did intro to the prophets and um, the color coding I think was wrong either that or I was trying to do something different with it so on the intro to the prophets uh, video this chart shows up but it's got different colors down here how I color coded the prophets depending on the crisis some of these were wrong um, unless I was thinking of something different but according to my diagram here it's supposed to be what crisis is going on so it actually should follow an order. It should be the Assyrian crisis, the Babylonian crisis, and the Persian crisis, right? But it was not. Okay, these were switched. You, you had yellow in here, um, and they're not. The Persian crisis is not till there. So uh, Lamentations, Daniel, and Ezekiel were all miscoded. Mis that was not Persian crisis, which is what I had on my, the other slide. Um, it's the Babylonian. So I have rechanged these uh, on this slide for you. So don't use the one on the other one. Use the one from the Jeremiah um, presentation here. So, again, your Babylonian prophets are Obadiah, Joel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Okay? So, those are some of your contemporaries. The ones that prophesied during um, the Assyrian crisis was Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Jonah, Amos, Hosea. All right? In the early part of Jeremiah's ministry, Judah was threatened mainly by Egypt, okay, over here, and Assyria, over here. Judah was continually tempted to make alliances with one power so as to be protected from the other. Jeremiah's consistent message was to get right with God and trust him for protection from any nation. In the latter part of Jeremiah's career, the threats were from Babylon. Why? Because when Isaiah, which was, what did we say, about 60 years prior, right, when Isaiah was on the scene, the power was Assyria, okay? But by the time Assyria got over to here, okay, that means they're pretty much at their top, all right? The only part, place further you can go is to here. And Egypt, if you remember, was trying to push them back. That's why under Isaiah's prophecy time, Egypt was trying to get Judah to ally themselves with them so they could push Assyria back. So about 60 years later, Assyria is waning in power, all right? And the Babylonians are going to then 
another couple of comments. Let, let me tell you this on the contemporary powers, okay? Um, the last great Assyrian ruler was Ashurbanipal. He died in 626. So this is the signal for Babylon to assert her independence under Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And the Neo-Babylonian Empire then was established. So this is just one year after Jeremiah's call, which that was 627. The Babylonians then, allied with the Medes, began a systematic destruction of the Assyrian Empire. Um, Asher, the capital, fell in 614. Nineveh fell in 612. And the other resistance was crushed by 610 with the conquest of Haran. Okay? So Babylon had allied with Assyria, and then they decided that they want to take over. So they got the Medes to ally with them to overthrow the Assyrians. And then they dismantle the Syrian power. And once you do that, well, now all you got to do is maintain your military power and presence to every place that Assyria already had control over, which they did. And so, boom, they suck up that whole section. Um, two events brought about the change of threat. The Assyrians were defeated, as I mentioned, by the Babylonians with the fall of Nineveh. And the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians in 605 at the Battle of Carchemish. So Judah resisted Babylon, but Jeremiah, by directions from God, urged Judah to give in to Babylon so as to avoid utter destruction, since the divine judgment of captivity was inevitable. Okay? So the map on the next screen that I just had up demonstrates what happened and how Josiah died. Josiah was a good king. Okay? He died at a young age. Uh, just over 30, I think it was. So Pharaoh Necho asserted military might in Egypt, and he marched into the Palestinian coastal plain to aid the Assyrians in Haran. <coughs> Josiah of Judah attempted um, to stop them at Megiddo and was killed in 609. Babylon crushed the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605, the same year that Daniel is carried away, and for the next 70 years dominated the Old Testament world. This is the same 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied about. So, when Babylon exiled people, Babylon came in waves, okay? Because Babylon has an entire geographic area that they have to maintain control over, okay? So, their soldiers come and they go, all right? So, 605, 597, and 586 are the three deportations or periods of exile, they take place. 586 is the last one. That's when Jerusalem is burned. Okay? 605 is the first one. Uh, 597 is the second one. So, uh, 605, that's uh, Daniel. So, Daniel and the boys are carried away then. And then, I think Ezekiel and his group are carried away on the next one. So what you have to realize is that this time period where Jeremiah is prophesying, in between 
605 and 586 here. Okay, you already have people, Daniel, over here in Babylon. Okay, Daniel stays in Babylon for a long time. He's like an old man. Like when he's throwing the lion's den, it's not from a kid. He's like 70. All right, so he is growing up and serving in Babylon at the same time, okay, that this is going on over here and Jeremiah is telling the people, get right, and then, okay, it's too late. You didn't get right. Get ready. Babylon's coming, and don't try to fight them. Does that make sense? God's got someone over here. He's got somebody over there at the same time. And then Ezekiel gets added to the mix as well. Um, so all those are taking place. Josiah's death led to the end of the reform efforts. Josiah had been a reformer. He had gotten rid of the high places uh, where they worshipped pagan um, gods. Jehoahaz reigned in Josiah's uh, place until Pharaoh Necho removed him from the throne, replacing him with Eliakim. Why Pharaoh Necho? Well, Pharaoh Necho is also now trying to come into power. And at the same time that's happening, you have the, the Babylonian thing going on. Why? What caused the, the vacuum or the void? The Assyrian power is diminishing, particularly when, um, which king was it of Assyria that died? Well, Ashurbanipal died in 626. So from 626 on, right, there are these rising powers, okay? Assyria controlled it all, but in 626, the king of Assyria dies, Ashurbanipal. And so now, Babylon's rising up, and Egypt is also seeing this as their opportunity. Well, in order for them to do anything, what's their first move? Well, right here. So that's what's going on with all that. Um, so Josiah's death ended the reforms. Jehoahaz reigned instead of Josiah until Pharaoh Necho removed him and replaced him with Eliakim okay, and Jehoiakim. 605, the Babylonians, as I mentioned, defeat the Egyptians at Carchemish and deport from Judah, Daniel, etc. Okay, so we'll see uh, Carchemish in just a minute. Josiah went up to Megiddo, and he gets killed there. In 587, Zedekiah is defeated. His sons are killed. He's blinded, and he's taken to Babylon, or 586, and Jerusalem is destroyed. Okay? I think my next slide is Carchemish. All right. Well, that's the hill of Megiddo. Okay. So this is where they go. So you can see that uh, it doesn't look like such a huge hill. Okay. Here, here's a ramp coming up over there. But uh, if you're up here, they got to come up to get you. And so, you know, you, you fight them as they're coming up. Um, the battle itself. Here, Carchemish, okay? So, Pharaoh Necho asserted military might in Egypt, and he marched into the coastal land, okay? And Josiah wants to stop him. He wants to stop the Egyptians. Um, but it wasn't God's plan to stop the Egyptians. So, Josiah um, dies in the battle. And Babylon crushes the Egyptians. And for the next 70 years, they dominate. Okay? That's how the good king died. Alright. Alright, this.
this overview aspect here <coughs> covers many of the things that we uh, just discussed. And <coughs> just puts into perspective um, this whole time period that we were, we were just talking about. Okay, So the 20 kings of the Israel, the north, and the south, the Judah that we just talked about, it divides in 930 um, after Solomon's de um, death, Saul, David, Solomon. All right, And then uh, the exiles are listed, etc. All right, Israel, Assyria, Babylon, Persia down at the bottom. According to Barton Payne, the book of Jeremiah contains 90 different specific predictions, ranking second only to Isaiah. Around 812 verses are predictive. Okay, They're predicting something's going to happen, 60%. 222 relate to the fall of Jerusalem. Um, all I can say about that is that's a lot of prophecy of saying Jerusalem is going to fall. If God doesn't lie, you only need one, right? 222 verses related to it. Messianic prophecies are less than in Isaiah, okay, but they are still there. The righteous shoot to rule in 23.5. Priestly privileges related to that in 30.21. And the new covenant in 31.31. That's the most well known. Okay? to the actual book itself. We're going to look at some structure options. Then we're going to look at some summary teachings and chapter one of the book. regarding uh, Josiah while you're writing there is that um, Nico wasn't actually after <laughs> Josiah. He, he was just out to stop uh, the others. And by interfering in that, he, he got himself killed. Alright. Alright. You don't have to write all these down. Alright. I'm just going to show you. Uh, John Stevenson is someone that uh, I've referred to quite frequently his materials. Um, his structure of the book lays it out like this. Chapter 1 and chapter 52 are a prologue and an epilogue. That's, that's fairly common. Most of them will agree on that. The call of Jeremiah and the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, Chapters 2 to 20 are from Josiah to the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. 21 to 45, Josiah's sons to the captivity. 46 to 51, oracles to the nations. All right? The, the pattern of Jeremiah is that the call, I think this is uh, Jerushis. All right. He sees in here a historical narrative that fills up the whole center section. All right. So again, you still have the call and the fall, the prophecies of Judah and Jerusalem, and the prophecies of other nations. And in this middle section, is filled with a historical nar narrative, okay? Prior to the fall, the fall, and after the fall. Uh, this, uh, I, was, I was mistaken. This one's Jerusalem. Um, 
he has the, the narratives and the oracles in the middle, oracles of salvation and promise, the new covenant, 30 to 33. Um, narratives about the fall, 34 to uh, 45. And 46 to 51, oracles of judgment against the foreign nations. Now, um, that, that does correspond a little bit with house. Okay, That's why I left house up on the board. So you can see, if you put the 34... Put this narratives and oracles together, you'll get 34 to 51, and so that will match here. And if you put this oracles and narratives together, you'll get 2 to 29, and that will match here, and 30 to 33 goes there. So Darushi and House, in that sense, uh, kind of kind of agree. This one's from uh, Jensen, Irving Jensen. He has uh, tons of Bible study materials, and he's, um, he's just written a ton of stuff. But you can see here, that his doesn't really uh, match the same as theirs. And you can also see uh, this is just another survey book, and it cut off the bottom portion, I guess. But th this one divides it into the words of Jeremiah and the life of, of Jeremiah, okay, before and after um, the 605 era, etc. So what do you make of all that? Well, the bottom line, this is, I, I think this is from Dr. Newell. Um, 125, 26 to 45, 46 to 41. So again here, if you look at that, okay, well those divisions don't match here. 46 to 51 is um, cutting this in the middle. 26 to uh, 45 is half of that and half of that. So you're like, well, what in the world? Well, if you're going to figure it out for yourself, I mean, you got to go spend hours in the book and, and see what their arguments are based on, okay? I mean, they're not arbitrarily uh, coming up with these divisions. They're based on certain things. And so this is where the SPSU thing comes back into play. You, you would actually have to go check all of these. So <laughs> um, House and uh, Darushi, I think, are, are good models to begin with and then go from there. You can tweak as you go. All right. So this one is House is just as a, a reminder. And the other one is... Jerushi's uh, was up there. So seven summary teachings from the book, all right? First, inspiration and revelation. Jeremiah was a person who could question God. He asked God why. Who else does that? Job does that, right? So we've seen that in scripture, right? Are they condemned for doing that? Are, are they chastised? Are they rebuked? Are they killed? No. Okay, so it's okay. Jeremiah took his questions to God. He was a man with a personal religion. Okay? And he was thrown out of the temple, but he continued to worship. God reveals himself to Jeremiah. Okay? But Jeremiah has a relationship with God. The second one is the teachings concerning sin. Sin is a heart direction away from God, and it leads to destruction. Okay? The verbiage in Scripture is uh, your walk. Okay? We use it a little bit. How's your walk with God? Well, walk is, is how do you live your life in the scriptures. What is the path that you're on? Are you on the, the path of righteousness or a different path? The third is prayer. Jeremiah, okay? Some have said the father of true prayer. No use to intercede for people who refuse to repent. He used prayer as a means of settling doubts, okay? Jeremiah prayed. It goes with the, other, the first one. He talked with God. He confessed. Fourthly, <coughs> teachings on repentance 
Repentance is to turn to our God. It's a change of direction. Um, true sorrow for sin comes after repentance. Let me make a, a, another note on this. It may be on another slide, but it will be worth repeating. Uh, I believe the word repent is used 111 times in the book of Jeremiah. That's a lot. 111 times. True religion, number five, is not dependent on externals. The temple would be destroyed, the ark taken, and the only thing left is God. Um, when the music fades. Is that the song? That song, I think, is the song that was written um, by a church that decided, um, I think our focus is too much on the music. What would happen if we stripped away all the music? Do we actually know how to worship God? And that's where that song came from. Um, and so that's what they did. I think they did like a 30-day, you know, thing with it or something. Uh, and then that's what is going on here. If you strip away everything, this is another question that sometimes I had to ask myself, you know. What would your response be? Again, pick yourself up and put yourself in another temple. All you have is God. Jeremiah had a lonely life. He couldn't marry. He was ostracized. He was persecuted. He was thrown in cisterns, wells, pits, dungeons, etc. Thrown up in a birdcage section. What keeps you going? What keeps me going? Um, if everything was taken, do you still have faith in God? Do you, do you still uh, stick to God? And that's that's what's going on with, with Jeremiah. Yeah, he wanted to stop. He, he talked to God about it, right? But he continues on. Better to have God without the house than the house without God. And number six and seven, the importance of the individual to God for accountability reasons, and we are responsible to God. Okay? Jeremiah's life mattered. It mattered to God. God chose him to do a specific task. Your life matters to God. Teachings on the Messiah. The branch of righteousness is Jeremiah's favorite term. It's in 23.5 and 33.15. And then the New Covenant in chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 1. All right. Two visions support Jeremiah's call, both seen from ordinary experiences in life. In chapter 1, 11 and 12, the almond tree okay, is a play on words. The almond means to awake. It's the first tree to awake in spring. It's a watch tree. God basically is saying, I'm watching over my work to make sure it happens. I'm watching. What I'd like to do, actually, is take um, a minute right here and let me see here look at uh, the first chapter of the book so we've seen in chapter 1 verse 1 you've got the setting okay that's in verse 1. The, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hakiah, one of the priests living in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. So we know who he is, his family. We know where, where he's from, where he's living. That's verse 1. Continues on. 
It says, uh, The word of the Lord that came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Ju- I mean, Judah. And so now we have another verse, verse 2, dealing with the setting, okay? So, <clears throat> who is the king? When does God speak to him? Etc. It also came throughout the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah. That's fairly specific. Of Ju- Josiah, the king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Okay? And so here, verses 1, 2, and 3 is the setting. Verse 4 begins the themes of the book, which will be repeated throughout the rest of the book. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. Okay? I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Who chooses the prophets? God chooses them. Jeremiah just didn't volunteer, not like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. No, God chose out Jeremiah to do a work before him. Okay? He knows him, he formed him, he sanctified him, he set him apart. Verse 6, but I protested. Oh no, Lord God, look, I, I don't know how to speak since I am only a youth. So what was that? Moses basically says the same thing, doesn't he, in Exodus? The Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for you will go to everyone I send you and speak whatever I tell you. Where do the words come from? God, you speak what I tell you. Do not be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to deliver you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth. That's kind of similar to Isaiah, isn't it? Look, I have filled your mouth with my words. In Isaiah, he's the, the, uh, the seraphim is touching his mouth with the hot coal. He's purifying him, right? Because he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Here, God is reaching out his hand to fill his mouth with God's words. Look, I have filled your mouth with my words. See, today I have set you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, tear down, destroy, and demolish the building of the plant. Then the word of the Lord came to me asking, What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, A branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said, You have seen correctly, for I watched over my word to accomplish it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me inquiring, What do you see? And I replied, I see a boiling pot, its mouth tilted from the north to the south. And the Lord said, Disaster will be poured out from the north and all who live in the land. Indeed, I am about to summon all the clans and kingdoms of the north. So, what is he going to do? Okay. The almond tree. I'm watching and I'm going to make sure that what I say actually happens. The pot tipped over. I'm sending judgment upon you. What? It's a tipped over pot that's coming from the north. What's that going to be? That's Babylon. Coming to get you. They will come and each king will set up his throne at the entrance to Jerusalem's gates. They will attack all her surrounding walls and all the other cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgment against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Now get ready, stand up, tell them everything I command you. Do not be intimidated by them, or I will cause you to cower before them. Today I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, priests, and population. They will fight against you, but never prevail over you, since I am with you to rescue you. So, are they going to do all sorts of evil things to him? Yeah, they are. But are they going to kill him? No. Because who's going to protect him? God's going to protect him until it's his time to go, right? So, for 40, 50 years, he's going to prophesy. And he'll be thrown in prison, okay? He'll have all these things happen to him. But God is going to uh, protect him and take care of him. So, in verse number 8, or the beginning of 9, this is the Lord's declaration. Okay, that's used 176 times in these 
Ezekiel is 83 times, and Isaiah is 23 times, Amos is 21, Zechariah is 20, Haggai is 11. Um, it's hardly ever used in the rest of the Old Testament. This is a prophetic thing. This is the Lord's declaration. Okay, this is what, this is what God says. So, God makes Jeremiah. He gets him ready. He gives him these visions, these two visions, to show him, I'm going to make it happen. All right? And it's coming from the north, this boiling pot thing. Jeremiah's not promised an easy ministry, but he's promised God's presence. We just read that. Okay? The reason for the judgment is they forsook God, and as we read, they're burning incense. They're, they're worshiping other gods. Okay? Idolatry. The reasons for the judgment is restated in chapter 2, verse 13. They forsook God. But instead, they made their own gods. Okay, they get rid of the living water for no water, empty cisterns. In one seventeen and nineteen, they're sure success in the face of opposition. Get ready. Okay, they're gonna oppose you. Okay, don't you worry about it. Verse four and five, which we just read a minute ago. This is where the themes. Um, begin in Jeremiah 1 that are then picked up in the rest of uh, the book in the prophecies. And so when he's talking about how God has uh, created him and called him out to this, and then you've got the visions that we've already mentioned, and then you've got the judgment that's going to come. And what's the whole rest of the book talk about? All those things. Yep, so I'm just going to put that up and leave it there. All right? I could put the Jeremiah header one, but I'm just going to leave that. <coughs> so let's just uh, blitz through <coughs> some information on some of the remaining chapters, okay? So the first chapter was intro materials, and we went through most of that already. In chapter 2, Jeremiah begins to accuse them. He lays out the indictment, basically. This is a kind of like a court case. He lays out the indictment against Israel and their apostasy, their rebellion against him, rejection of him, and exchanging him for um, false gods. He says in, in verse 2, I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love of the bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, and continues on with that there. Um, and then in verse 9, he says, I was going to bring a case against them and against your children's children. And so there's a lawsuit, and therefore there's going to be a judgment after the lawsuit. Consequences begin in verse 14, and discuss what's going to happen there, and then the judgment that is deserved. In chapter 3, we begin to learn unfaithful lessons um, from the north. But your sister in Israel should have taught you some things about being faithful. You should have learned from her. In verses 6 to 10, um, Judah did not learn from Israel's experience about God's judgment. In verse 11, a damaging indictment is mentioned uh, against Judah. It says, The Lord announced to me, Unfaithful Israel 
uh, showed herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So unfaithful Israel, which has already been taken away by Assyria, is more, more faithful than you are. So you can expect, basically, whatever they got or worse. Chapter 3, 12 to 18 is a plea for repentance and a promise of restoration. Come back to me. Okay, in chapter 4, basically, we're now at repent or else. Verses 1 to 4 is a repentance of turning away from sin and toward the Lord. If you return to me, Israel, he says in verse 1, if you return to me, remove your detestable idols. Verse 3, break up, plow, make suitable for productivity. This is what the Lord says. Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Humble yourself before me. In verse 4, make your heart right is internal commitment. And verses 5 to 31 is the absence of repentance produces the only alternative. Judgment. There's nothing else left. In chapter 5, we search for the righteous. Where are they? The search has to be made to validate the impending judgment. Are there no righteous? It reminds me of Abraham with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. He bargains down to ten. What do we find here? We find here in chapter 5, Jeremiah can't find any. Roam through the streets. See if you can find any. Take notes. If you find a single person, anyone who acts justly, who seeks to be faithful, I will forgive her. Can you find me one? Abraham bargained to ten. God's saying, give me one. <clears throat> a de declaration to the prophet is verse... Um, I'm sorry, the, the not even one righteous is verse 1. Verses 4 and 5, uh, sin permeates every level of society from the bottom to the top. Verse 6 is images of destruction. He says, uh, a lion from the forest will strike you down. A wolf from an arid plain will ravage them. A leopard keeps watch over the cities. Anyone who leaves will be torn to pieces because of their rebellious acts, or as many as their unfaithful deeds are numerous. Verse 7 to 13 is the rationale for the judgment. Verses 14 to 17 is a declaration to uh, the prophet and the people. And then 18 to 31 is God's design to punish and teach his people. And it ends in 5, 30, and 31 with a failure of the spiritual leadership. As go the leaders, so go the people, right? In chapter 6, he goes, and in verse 1 to 15, he talks about Jerusalem being under siege, but everyone is still in denial. The band-aids aren't going to fix the problem. Counsel to observe the ways that men have traveled to find the good way and travel in the paths. They reject everything that God brings to them. And chapter 7 is the temple sermon. This is what I mentioned as like the straw that broke the camel's back. As he goes to the, the temple and he says about their false trust in the temple. Just like in the earlier books of the Bible, they had become superstitious about carrying the ark with them and it would guarantee their victory. So they're superstitious about the temple in Jerusalem. God will never destroy Jerusalem that has the temple. And he'll never destroy the temple. Well, they're wrong. He destroyed both. So, that's what's going on in chapter 7. Um, just like Amos in the 8th century in Israel, Jeremiah preached to a very religious people. And we are in a, in a culture that is very religious. Um, I know that, or they say, the church stat guys in Orlando say only 14% of people in Orlando regularly attend a church but in uh, certain demographics the percentage is a bit higher quite a bit higher actually but even the people that, that tell me they go to church like how they live their life doesn't reflect what going to church should imply and that's what's going on in Jeremiah so you, you, you do all these things that they don't match with what you said but lives are filled with injustice 
So in verse 3 of chapter 7, Yahweh wants to see right actions, not merely hear right words. So the behavior that God wants is listed in verses 4 to 6. So don't trust deceitful words, chanting this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, okay, if you no longer oppress the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and you no longer shed innocent blood in this place, or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves, then I will allow you to live in the land. So we talked about this in Isaiah, this idea of justice, the injustice that's everywhere. So the promise is then listed in verse 7 that he'll allow them to live in the land. He continues on and discusses how the wrong behavior in verses 8 and 11, and then 12 to 15 talks about how uh, he's treated Israel, and he'll do the same to them. Okay? You have to be careful. The term Israel sometimes refers to Judah, the south, and sometimes it refers to the north, Israel, and sometimes it refers to both. So you got to figure out from the context. Um, in chapter 8, he mourns for the people. Okay? The people's plight, an emotional outburst over the judgment of sin, the opportunity for repentance came and went in verse 20, and now judgment is on the horizon. It's coming. Okay? The pot is there. It's boiling over. It's coming. In verse nine, or chapter 9, is uh, universal judgment. Okay? The heart of the matter in verse 26 is the heart. It's not the flesh issue. It's just your hearts are not proper. That's why earlier he had said, circumcise your hearts. Humble yourself. The Apostle Paul uses that same phraseology. Chapter 10 talks about idols. Okay, Men prefer a God of their own making rather than the God who made them. We still have the same problem today. Jeremiah acknowledged God's ownership of humanity. In verse 23 and 25, it intercedes for Jacob. In chapter 11, there's a conspiracy in contrasted with the covenant keeping that God expects. Um, we can look through chapter 11 and see that. In 13 to 17, um, there's judgment for the faithless Judah. Another prohibition um, on prayer. False prophets are condemned. Moses and Samuel would not succeed in changing God's plan for Judah, he says in chapter 15, verse 1. Um, what, what you just realize there is that, not that there's this huge hierarchy, but when you talk about prophets of God, like there is like a top dog, you know what I'm saying? And so that is, you know, Moses and Samuel are listed as, as that benchmark, if you will. In chapter 17, verse 1, he mentions the severity of sin and how big a deal it really is. Throughout this, of course, he also has several images. Uh, the, the linen underwear, the things he puts aside, and then they rot and they fall apart. Um, and that's what's going on. Their morality is rotting. In 17.1, the sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus, with a diamond point, and is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherah poles by the green trees on the hills. So it's, it's engraved. It's like it's in them. This is what you're doing. 17, 19, there's one more warning. Obey or perish. In chapter 18, Jeremiah's at the potter's house. This is another familiar passage. Just like clay in the potter's hand, God can rework the spoiled vessel. For the prophet, the message from God may be learned in multiple ways. God's declaration of intention is conditional. It depends on the response of the people. He can smash that down and he can remake it. But Israel is so deluded. And the people begin to plot against Jeremiah. In this chapter, after hearing these uh, accusations, they can't deal with it. In chapter uh, 19, there's another um, the symbol used, the, the clay jug. 
the Lord is going to break the people of Judah just like he broke that jug. That you won't humble yourself, God is going to humble you. He will break you. In chapter 20, uh, Jeremiah could not stop preaching even though doing so created trouble for him. 20 verse 9 says, If I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in. I cannot prevail. So Jeremiah continues. God puts the words in his mouth and he has to say them. And God protects him in this time. In chapter 1, Yahweh refuses to help the people because they won't repent. And in 22, judgment is listed against evil kings like Zedekiah. Uh, and um, chapter 22 continues additional judgments on kings. In chapter 23, verse 5, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds who shepherd my people. You have scattered my flocks. You banished them and have not attended to them. I will attend to you because of your evil acts. I will gather the remnant of my flock. There's always a remnant. From all the lands where I have banished them. Who banished them? Why are they exiled and scattered all over? God banished them. He's going to gather them back. And I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them. They will no longer be afraid or dismayed, nor will any be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 5. The days are coming, future. The Lord declares, when I will raise up a righteous branch of David, Messianic, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In contrast to everything going on. Where's the wise king? Where's the justice in the land? Where's the righteousness in the land? It's not there. In his days, the days of the branch of David, verse 6, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. The days are coming, repeating verse 5, the Lord's declaration, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the land of the north and from all the other countries. So in other words, God brought them out of Egypt. That's the Exodus. Well, this is the new Exodus. He's going to bring them back. He's going to regather them from wherever he scattered them. And so they will come back and they will become a people. Remember in Isaiah how Isaiah prophesied that the people who will be brought together and together that they would worship Gentile and uh, Jews alike and they would have one God and one king, one Yahweh. That's similar to what's going on here. So 23. And then in verse 18 of chapter 23, he lists out this criteria or qualifications um, for a shepherd or a prophet. Uh, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Who has paid attention to his word and obeyed? Look, a storm from the Lord. So that the prophet gets his word from God and he passes it on to the people. And the people are supposed to accept it and obey it. Um, Jeremiah chapter 24 is another um, illustration with the figs. The only hope for the future rested in submission to God. The exiles will be blessed. Those attempting to escape the exile will be cursed. So now that Babylon is coming, Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Um, verse 20, chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had deported Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, of Judah, the officials of Judah and the craftsmen and the metalsmiths from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple. One basket had good figs, like early figs, but the other had bad figs, so bad they were inedible. The Lord said, what do you see? I see figs. Good figs are very good, bad figs are very bad. They're inedible. 
The word of the Lord said, this is what the Lord says, like the good things, so I regard as good the exiles from Judah I sent away from this place. But now it's like, wait a minute, this is judgment. I'm sending you away in judgment, but the ones that go willingly, now you're the good ones. The ones that stay and rebel or keep trying to fight, you're the bad ones. I'll keep my eyes on them, for their good and will return them to the land. I will build them up, and I will not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. It goes back to chapter 1, right? Verse, what was that, 10? Um, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. That's always his goal, that they would know that I am God. They will be my people, and I will be their God, because they will return to me with all their heart. That's verse 7 of chapter 24. But the bad pigs, they're inedible. This is what the Lord says. Those remaining in the land, those living in the land of Egypt, I will deal with them. I will make them an object of horror and disaster to all the kingdoms, a disgrace, an object of scorn, a ridicule, until they perish in the land that I've given them. In chapter 25, it's a review of his ministry and a discussion on the exile. There's 23 years of preaching to no avail. Because of the failure to listen, they'll have desolation. But there will be hope in verse 12. After the judgment, 70 years will pass before God will restore the nation. And then the way he will restore them is he will judge the Babylonians who he used to judge the Israelites. That's through chapter 25. As the cup of God's wrath will be poured out on them. Twenty-six <clears throat> continues um, at the temple again here, and Jeremiah is seized, and then he is uh, released, and then you have the idea of the yoke. I don't know. Have you ever seen? There's a, a movie, Jeremiah movie. Um, Turner Broadcasting put out a whole bunch of Bible movies, and they're actually pretty good. Um, and the Jeremiah one, I mean, it's probably twenty years old now, but uh, it's pretty good. And so, God, uh, Jeremiah prophesies to them that they're going to be put in, in a yoke. And, and then they, they come and they, they bust it down and say, uh, you know, we'll break that yoke. And he's like, and God will put you in one of iron. And um, they think that they are able to bust out of the situation. And, and Jeremiah is telling them, no, you're not. God is going to put you in this. You, you cannot bust out of what God put you in. You need to su submit yourself. You refuse to submit and repent back here. Now you cannot escape the judgment. There's no avoiding it. So you need to submit and humble yourself and endure it now. And God will take you out of it um, at a later date. All right. And chapter 30 to 33 is the future restoration. Okay? From captivity. They're going to be restored to the land in chapter 30, verses 1 to 24. The nation will be restored in chapter 31. Verse 1 to 40, both Israel and Judah, okay? The rebuilding of Jerusalem in 32, 1 to 44, and the reconfirming of the covenant in 33, 1 to 26. So everything is, is being uh, brought back and, and restored all in the future. God's will for Israel. Look at chapter 30, verse 1 to 3. He says, I will cause Israel to return. 4 through 11, I will break Israel's bonds. 12 to 17, I will hear Israel's wounds. 18 to 22, I will restore Israel's glory. And 23 to 24, I will punish the wicked in Israel. This is what God's going to do. Something that he will do. 
talking to the, the students yesterday or the day before. Everybody has a master. Everybody's a slave to somebody. And no, no, I, I'm not a slave to anybody, man. Yes, you are. No, no, I'm not. Yeah, everybody has a, a master. Everybody is a slave. You are a slave to whatever controls you. You're a slave to whatever tells you what to do. Uh, and the people that refuse to submit to anybody, they end up being a slave of what? And eventually, they come in conflict with, conflict with the law enforcement system and end up a slave of the criminal justice system. And then they have a new master that they probably never wanted, right? We, we all do. And what God is trying to say is that I, I am the master that is loving. I am the master that knows what's best for you. I am the master that has the best deal for you. I am the master uh, that created you, for goodness sakes, right? And that's what he's offering. Jesus, in the New Testament, in the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, is to be our king. God rewards the work of the faithful, and we need to be repentant with godly sorrow. Jeremiah 32 and 33, Jeremiah purchases some, some land, and, and then um, in chapter 32, 1 to 5, he gets persecuted by being thrown in prison. He prays. God promises him renews. God told him back in chapter 1 that he was going to take care of him. So, that continues to happen. God's servants are continued to be in prison today all around the world. We don't face them here, maybe, but all around the world they are. Um, the same thing. It continues on. <laughs> and, uh, so, in So, then in 34 to 35, discussing <coughs> the current state, the present fall of Jerusalem. Um, the first part of it, chapter 34, 1, one to uh, one following. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the earthly kingdoms under his control, and all the nations were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding cities. And this is what the Lord said. Go speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. As for you, you will not escape from his hand, but are certain to be captured and handed over to him. You will meet the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak face to face. You will go to Babylon. Yet hear the Lord's words, Zedekiah. This is what God says concerning you. You will not die by the sword. You will die peacefully. There will be a burning ceremony for you, just like the burning ceremony for your fathers, the former kings who preceded you. Alas, Lord, will alas, Lord, will be the lament for you, for I have spoken this word, this is the Lord's declaration. So Jeremiah related these to Zedekiah, while the king of Babylon's army was attacking Jerusalem and all of Judah's remaining cities. Um, and only they were left among Judah's fortified cities, Lachish and Ahish. And that's chapter thirty four, one you have to picture yourself as the king the time has not come Babylon's knocking at the door and now the prophet says surrender and submit and you won't be killed do you, do you believe him do you trust him or do you 
the continuous disobedience obviously carries judgment. Continues in chapter 35 with the Rechabites example. Um, this chapter 35 is one of those chapters that's kind of out of order. It occurs probably before chapters 32, 33, and 34. But uh, respect towards and obedience to the Father's commands in verse 1 through 11, and the example of Judah, disrespect towards and disobedience to the Father's commands. So you have the Rechabites, which are descendants of uh, Je um, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who supported Jehu, bloody Jehu. Man, when Jehu was a king, I mean, he slaughtered all sorts of people. When he overthrew the house of Ahab. Ahab, of course, was married to Jezebel, the wicked witch of the north, right? So, sorry, that's a high call. After uh, about 599 B.C., the Rechabites took refuge from Nebuchadnezzar in Jerusalem. At that point, the Lord commanded Jeremiah to take them to the temple and give them wine to drink. And when he did so, they refused, saying that their father, uh, Jonadab, or Jehonadab, depending on how it's in your Bible, had commanded them not to drink wine or to live in a house or to engage in agriculture. These regulations may have been intended as a protest against Canaanite religions or settled life in general, but more likely they protected the Rechabites' lifestyle and trade secrets as itinerant metal workers. Jeremiah contrasted their faithfulness to the commands of their ancestors with the faithlessness of the people of Judah to the Lord. So he's saying these people are more faithful to their their family traditions, okay, than you are to your real father. And that's the contrast in chapter 35. So we're, we're 35 chapters into the book out of 52 chapters. He's still setting up contrast. I mean, how many times do you have to say uh, that someone is out of line, right? In chapter 36, the word of God is revealed to Jeremiah in the first three verses. It's recorded by Baruch in verse 4. It's read to the people in verse 5 to 10. It's received by the princes in 11 to 19. It's rejected by the king in 20 to 26. And then it's rewritten by Baruch in 27 to 32. God expects us when we have a covenant, when we have a promise, that we honor it. You know, we live in a, a day and age where um, I see divorce signs all the time on the street corner. It's $99. You know, um, God says you honor your covenant. Starts with honoring your covenant to Him first. That's the primary one. But a marriage covenant is also a covenant, right? When you make a covenant, you keep it. Hypocritical religion is unacceptable. What does James say in chapter five? James, um, well, forget just chapter five. He says it multiple times throughout the whole book of James. Um, pure and undefiled religion. Same types of things the prophets are saying. <clears throat> Jeremiah thirty-seven and, and thirty-eight talks about Zedekiah. And Jeremiah, in their last days in Jerusalem, Zedekiah requests prayer from Jerusalem or from Jer Jeremiah, and um, then Jeremiah gets put in prison. Then in 39, the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. Chapter 40, Jeremiah stays in Judah. Then Gedaliah is assassinated by Ishmael. And the people seek Jeremiah's counsel. He tells them not to go. They want to go to Egypt, right? And then he says, stay here. But in chapter 43, his counsel is rejected. And then God's judgment against his people in Egypt shows up in chapter 44 as they take uh, Jeremiah with them. Chapter 46 
uh, is prophecies against the different nations. You can see um, your Bible, chapter 46, is against Egypt, and then Israel, the Philistines, Moab, and uh, 49, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Peter, Hazor, and Elam. And chapter 50 is prophecies against Babylon, and then the return of God's people. Um, and 51 is continuing God's judgment on Babylon, and then chapter 52 is uh, the recap epilogue of the book. So, 52 chapters. Dr. Jeremiah. Obviously, we barely skim the surface. But that covers the book in general detail.